When you wake up in the morning and check your phone, does it feel like this or like this? Because with Shopify, your morning can feel like this way more often. That's the sound of a sale being made on your new Shopify store. And while client payments may require weeks or months of work, you can start generating a semi-passive income to grow your business by setting up a Shopify store all of your own. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your latest designs on shirts or bags or adding something totally different to your business, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. You can sell online, you can sell in person, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. With Shopify, you can set up your store in minutes and start selling immediately. And Shopify's award-winning support is there to help you as you go. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash freelance. That's all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash freelance to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash freelance or click the link in our show description and start waking up to this. Whether you want to travel more or communicate better with international clients, you need to try Babbel. I've used Babbel's courses and you can do the same in order to learn real life conversation skills in a different language. Order food, ask for directions, or speak to clients without having to use translation apps. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription. This is only for our listeners at babbel.com slash freelance. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash freelance, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash freelance. Rules and restrictions apply. I'm Brandon Hull, and it's time for Freelance to Founder. Just absolutely great as far as like a mentor to talk to him. So I bounced the idea off of him. I talked to some of the agencies that I was working with, just high level, like, what about this? Don't you think this would be cool? Got their input and feedback as well. And then eventually it became, I got to the point where I said, I've got to start doing something and building this. And that's when I reached out to what became my co-founder, um, who was an acquaintance through the job, and he was a developer. So we started talking about it, and he was on board immediately, and, and we started rolling with it. From Millo, you're listening to Freelance to Founder, a podcast where I talk to men and women like Charlie Frankus, the man you just heard. They're service providers, marketing agency owners, online course builders, authors, bloggers, product inventors, software developers, and sometimes even other podcasters. I introduce you to my guests in a way where you genuinely get to know them, why they're now doing what they're doing today, how they got started, and the big and small decisions they made to scale things beyond themselves. For some entrepreneurs, the ideas come as they think about industries they interact with. They see inefficiencies or missed opportunities and move in quickly to fill those needs. For other entrepreneurs, they are living in an industry, dealing with all of the daily frustrations, and that is where the spark to finally take action comes. Charlie falls in the latter category. He knew he'd someday be an entrepreneur. It took a little while for the idea to fully germinate as he got feedback from numerous sources over the years on the potential before finally launching Springzy. Springzy is a combination of software and service that makes it easier for restaurant owners to run product contests to spur sales. But instead of just tallying up who sold what from the menu, the solution can be integrated with point-of-sale data and even incorporates fun leaderboards for restaurant staff. Charlie started the company while working as a marketing manager for a successful restaurant chain called Buffalo Wings and Rings. Early success, along with some freelance work on the side, ultimately made it possible for him to leave BWR to run Springzy full-time. It's been over six years since Springzy's been in business now, serving hundreds of locations and thousands of employees. This episode is a really cool one because Charlie turns lessons from Springzy into ones that can be applied anywhere. If you're paying attention to this one, you'll hear how to validate your idea, how to leverage data, along with what your gut tells you. And in Charlie's three-in-one segment, at the end of the episode, you'll get some powerful feedback on what principles and behaviors you need to incorporate. All right, without further delay, I'm happy to bring you my episode with Charlie Frankus, founder of Springzy. Charlie Frankus, 
Thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait to have this conversation with you today. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's been a long time, my friend. I feel like we've known each other for six or seven years. And and to watch Springzy evolve over these years has been kind of fun to see you continue to expand and and offer totally unique service to the to the restaurant industry. And I'm excited to to tell your story and let actually let you tell your story and to uh, let people learn from it as well. Let's go to let's start with the present day. Um I've already explained to listeners what Springzy is. Why don't you set the stage for this story by telling listeners the scope of the company today, uh, either in revenue or in number of locations that you're in, uh, how the company is making money and how it's doing today. Sure, absolutely. So we are um, we are kind of a hybrid, I would say, between a software as a service and an agency and that we bring a lot of experience to the table in creating crew incentive competitions and managing them, but we've also developed a custom-built platform for actually tracking and engaging with the crew members. So our business model right now is kind of split. We have about 120 restaurants that have signed up and are with us year-round, and they are, they're using the platform on their own. We're helping them in some areas where they need help. And then we've also partnered with some really large uh, beverage companies and suppliers and we work with them in kind of like sporadic promotional um, timeframes. So they'll come to us and ask us to design a campaign for a 60 or a 90 day period to help their customers engage their crew members. So it, we'll be working with anywhere between you know 100 or 1,000 restaurants at a time over a 60 to 90 day window for these types of programs. Uh, in terms of company size, we're still fairly small. We have two uh, full-time employees. It's myself and the other co-founder. And then we have a few um, people that we bring on from time to time on an hourly basis when we get busy and we need help uh, doing like data entry and that type of thing. This is so cool. So <laughs> it's amazing to me that you not only have grown to that level as far as individual locations that you serve, you know, as, as subscribing locations, uh, so to speak, or as part of a chain that's subscribing or a restaurant group that's sub- subscribing, but that you've gotten national providers like beverage providers to catch the vision of what you're trying to accomplish and see how they could benefit selfishly, but also how they can be a part of promotional program. I think that's the evolution of the product that's been fascinating to me. Let's go back in time and, and see if we can figure out exactly where the genesis for this idea might have come from. If we go really far back in time, like college or even childhood, should we have seen this coming, this entrepreneurial bug that you would ultimately be a founder of your own company, first of all? Oh, yeah. uh, Without a doubt. I think I just found out the other day, my parents told me when I was like, I want to say three years old, I set up a table at the end of the driveway and was trying to sell rocks to people that were like, driving not by. lemonade rocks yeah, rocks i don't know where i found them i i do not remember this at all but they just told me this the other day but then if you fast forward uh to high school i'd got my first computer and this was probably 1999 2000 ish so um on- online commerce existed but it was still kind of like not mainstream by any means right i'd got this great idea where i was going to buy replica oakley sunglasses wholesale and resell them online uh, so I taught myself to make website. I started, I found a wholesaler and I started ordering them. And then uh, like a couple months into it, uh, I got a phone call from one of Oakley's attorneys. And and I asked my parents like, what does cease and desist mean? And they're like, uh, who are you talking to? So uh, obviously Oakley was very gracious when they found out I was like a 16 year old and um, they just made me stop basically. So I had to shut down that website. But that was those were kind of like the early years of trying to uh, start a business. Well, you're, a, you're a clearly a true entrepreneur because you're not just coming up with a, in, you know, inventing a product that you can sell, but you're actually finding ways to push the envelope and how to market that product from a branding standpoint. You're, you're maybe even stepping over the boundaries a little bit. So it, the bug was in you. Were your parents entrepreneurs, either one of your parents? Uh, no, not, not really at all. In fact, they, I would say... They didn't discourage me, but um, they didn't really get. They didn't get it. They didn't really understand what I was trying to do uh, or why I was trying to do it. Yeah. So they they were encouraging the more traditional route that almost all of us still, um, from your age up to my age and beyond, would normally consider the traditional route, which is 
get a you know traditional uh, degree at college, go get your job after college, and develop a nice career for yourself. I assume, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which is uh, tried and true, and I understand, especially their generation where they were coming from. The, the internet didn't exist, so their world was a lot smaller in terms of what they could what they could be exposed to, what they could market to. Um, and they didn't really understand kind of the tidal wave of the internet that was coming. But I still, uh, I think it's sound advice because you don't want to put yourself in a situation where you're forced to come up with an idea and start a business because it can't really be forced. You've got mm-hmm. to kind of take your time and try different. I mean, I can't tell you how many different like small internet businesses I've tried starting that you know made a little bit of money, but they weren't going to be a long-term um, success story. So well, you've wait, got to try your you hand. You can't throw that out there and me not call you on it. So what would be some other examples right. of ideas that you uh, toyed with in your earlier days? Sure. So back to high school again, I, I think I was the first, I know I was the first person at my grade in high school when I was in ninth grade, maybe the entire school to get a cell phone. At the time, some people had pagers, but cell phones were like just starting to become somewhat affordable. And I'm like, I, I want a cell phone. Wouldn't that be so cool? People would be able to call me like w- even when I'm not home. Right. So I convinced my parents to let me buy a cell phone and they were ridiculously expensive at the time. Like you paid per minute and it was, it was like, I want to say it was like $60 a month for 30 minutes of talk time or something right. crazy. Right. You had to but ration they, your minutes very carefully. Exactly. <laughs> they let me do it. And then I, I got it and I started looking for accessories like cases and chargers and I realized when you go to the store, you're paying a lot more than if you go online. You could buy a charger for like $2 online, but at the store, they're like $30. So I got a wholesale account set up with a cell phone accessory supplier and I started ordering supplies. And at the, then you know, within a year, other people started getting them and I started selling cell phone accessories and I set up a website. I think it was called customcellphoneaccessories.com, but I, it never really took off and just because of the sheer volume of models of phones and accessories right, and that yep. type of thing, it just didn't make sense to try to stock an inventory. Yep. So I made a little bit of money, but it wasn't a long-term win. And there was a lot of competition starting up as well. Right. How old were you when you did this? Uh, I don't remember an age. It was a ninth. So ninth grade, I got the cell phone, probably 10th or 11th grade. I started selling the accessories. Holy smokes. So at an early age, you're recognizing the promise of e-commerce. Let's put it that way, right? Oh, yeah, you're absolutely. And, and while I would never, I've known you a few years now, and I would never call you a, a promotional or salesperson necessarily, you clearly saw opportunities at a young age and didn't just think they were cool and admire them, but you saw them as business opportunities at a much younger age than I think most people would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was always driven by by things that interested me. So the 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 Folkleys, like a friend of mine had gotten some and I looked at them like, those are really cool. Like I'd like to have those. And then I started shopping and I realized there was a huge deficiency in the buying process uh, with that particular example. Right. All the images on all the websites were like actual product images from the Oakley website, which I thought one was a little bit misleading and also like not right. So I actually invested in a digital camera, which at the time was like $200 for this piece of junk digital camera that took like a picture that was 480 by like 320 pixels just so I could get actual product photos. And I think I was the first website to do that um, at the time. So they were Folkslees, but they were authentic photos of them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they were actual product photos, which nobody else was doing at the time. So despite those entrepreneurial leanings in your teens, You'd go on to the the Ohio State University and um and start the path of getting a traditional degree to get that job after college. Uh, I know you went to the, the Ohio State. What did you study there? Uh, so my I actually started at UC, and then um, the girl I was dating ended up going to Ohio State. So right. that's I, the University of Cincinnati, right? Yep. Sorry. Yeah, University of Cincinnati. Uh, so then I transferred to Ohio State to be with her which turned out to be a great move um, because I'm now married to her. Oh, right. <laughs> so, well done. Um, so that relationship was able to last, I think, as a result of that decision. So I went there with the intent of going to the, I think the Fisher College of Business is what it's called, but I've never been much of a student. So my grades weren't particularly great. And I kept thinking, I think you had to have, I don't know, a 3.0 minimum to even apply and be considered, which I wasn't, I wasn't there. So I kept telling myself, well, you know, I'm going to try really hard this year and, by next year, I'll have my GPA up and then I'll be able to apply. And 
after like three or four years, I kind of realized, you know, this is this clearly is not going to happen. So I went to my guidance counselor and I just said, what degree am I the closest to yes. at this point with just kind of the hodgepodge of classes that I'd selected? And it turned out to be um, human ecology, which was kind of like a quasi business, uh, like consumer affairs degree because of some of the classes I'd been taking. So that's what I ended up uh, getting my degree in. But I wasn't, I was certainly not much of a student. I found an old paper I'd written, not, I, I found it when I was going through uh, some of my files not too long ago. And it was about like careers after college or something. And I just, it was just an entire rant about how useless college is <laughs> and how like I don't have any interest in pursuing a career and how I'm just going to start a company and a little bit naive at that age, I would say. That's very funny. So um, school, not your thing. And by the way, you join the illustrious ranks of past guests on this podcast who went to school, discovered that was the beginning of them discovering that those types of traditional structured environments that we've all been brainwashed to think are the way you're supposed to do things were not, they weren't cut out for them, Um, just wasn't their thing. And in some cases, we've had guests who found their product, their service, or whatever it is while they were in college. And it was doing well enough for them that they decided to break away from school and pursue it full-time. In other cases, they just they could just feel that constraint that this is not what I should be doing and I need to duck away from school and see if I can find a, a plan B that works for them. And that sounds... It sounds like you persevered. Human ecology, which is a unique one. Right. Um, but, but you persevered and, and finished school. And your first job was not had nothing to do with human ecology, unless you take a philosophical view of it, you went into the restaurant industry. So how did that, yeah. how did that door open for you? Sure. So uh, actually to do that, we have to rewind because it wasn't, that wasn't my first job. My first job was, I was 12 and I got a paper route because I wanted of to buy a jet ski. So I wanted a jet ski. The only way to get a jet ski was with money, obviously. <laughs> so, and the only job available to a 12 year old is a paper route. So all this time, it's been about basically making money to buy the things that I want and do the things that I want to do. And I've, I've wanted to create my own business as a result, but sometimes that doesn't happen right away. So right. I worked as a paper route. I pushed carts at Kroger, which is a grocery chain. And then um, I worked in restaurants through high school and college kind of off and on. And that's really where uh, my job right out of college start, came okay. from. Okay. Because I worked in a restaurant and the owner's son eventually bought a restaurant chain. Mm-hmm. So I had gotten to know him just through working for his dad. And then fast forward, I'm in college. Uh, a friend of mine and I had actually bought a snow cone trailer and ran it for a couple months in the summer selling snow cones, which is an extremely profitable venture. Especially in the Midwest, yes. Yeah. So we're, we're selling these. And then uh, the guy, we, we mutually both knew him, bought the restaurant chain and they started franchising. And we were my partner and I were sitting there selling so- snow cones and we said, oh, wouldn't it be cool to own a, uh, a sports bar or sports restaurant? And so we started talking to them about franchising and opening our own restaurant, you know, being in college and pretty much completely broke at the time, we weren't able to obtain the financing necessary to open a restaurant, which is a good thing because I don't think we quite understood just how big of a commitment that was at the time. But you know, we, we gave it a shot. It didn't work out. Uh, fast forward to the end of my college career, I needed a job. So I, I called up the guy that bought the restaurant chain and I asked him, hey, are you guys hiring? And they invited me in for an interview and then they offered me a job that day. So I started working for them and the chain is called Buffalo Wings and Rings. And at the moment, it's about a 50-unit chain based here in Cincinnati. And at the time, when I started there, there were 14 restaurants. So I came on as like operations and new store opening because that's they were growing like gangbusters and they needed people to help open stores. Right. And then within within kind of that organization, very quickly, I moved over to the marketing side because that's kind of where I naturally gravitated to. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a huge difference between running a, a small restaurant group, even if it has five or six locations that might all be in, this, in one city, in Cincinnati mm-hmm. or something, totally different thing to be running a franchise that has separate owners that now have an expectation of that relationship between the franchisor and the franchisees uh, let alone the fact that you get start getting to dozens of locations in different communities with different demographics and so forth. That's a whole different beast. And while I can understand that they needed you for the launch process, I can also see quickly how marketing became an urgent need to have a system to how they would do that as well, right? How they would consistently roll out 
new locations, um, but also initiatives that need to have consistency for consumer experiences elsewhere as well. So that's a that's a that's a huge undertaking for a young guy to be able to take to take on the marketing role. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the things you kind of have to hit the ground running and make it up as you go. And it was, I mean, it was very much, although the company had been around for a long time, when they had bought it, I want to say it was down to six locations. Okay. So it was very much a startup right. in, in the most traditional sense. And that they came in, started with, you know, a basic foundation, but they had to build it up from scratch. And as you said, once they started growing outside of the regional DMA, they and they once they introduced franchisees, they had all sorts of new challenges they had to figure out. Yep. Uh, so you're learning on the job uh, yeah, how to absolutely. think like a large chain, we'll call it, um, marketer in many ways. You might have known the restaurant industry and felt like you knew the inner workings of operations and even the launch process of a restaurant or a series of restaurants. But it's a whole different thing to start thinking in terms of scale, not just from a process standpoint, but from a people standpoint, from a packaging standpoint, all of that. You're learning on the job in this role. That must have been somewhat intimidating. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. Uh, it was challenging, but in a really good way. Like looking back on it, I wouldn't. Uh, wouldn't have changed the thing as far as you know, following the traditional route, going to college, getting the job there, because it it allowed me the runway to really figure out what I wanted to do and find something that worked for me. And also, I learned so much along the way. Spent more in the career aspect than at college, but working in that environment um, gave me a huge amount of experience. Yeah, it sounds like you probably learned not only the the job itself, the role of a marketer, but you thought in terms of systems and policies, and you started to appreciate how all of these pieces moved together for, as a business person, not just as a marketer. Yeah, absolutely, and and that doesn't even touch on the on the networking that comes along with with that type of any type of job and that kind of role, which has been invaluable. So it's all I, I would say I would caution people to be discouraged about getting a traditional job because it's it's all building to the foundation of what you ultimately want to accomplish. It's yeah. not it's not a step backwards, it's still a step forwards. Right. Interesting. So there there may be different paving stones, so to speak, on the path to ultimately doing what you want to be doing. You shouldn't necessarily be quick to see one as a negative. It's it's not it doesn't have to be this is terrible and this is good and uh, working for yourself is for is is for everybody. That's not the case, obviously, but recognizing the good in a type in a certain type of role and what you can get from it, not just in skills or attributes, but actually the connections that you make as well and and how that can lead to the next thing that you do in life potentially, right? Absolutely. Good. So as you're doing this, uh, time goes by, four years, five years, six years. Ideas are going in and out of your mind. I'm assuming this is the case. <laughs> oh, yeah. Ideas are going in your mind for how you how you effectively roll out new products or how you how you how marketing plays its role in new stores launches and so forth i assume that the gears start turning in your mind that the offering that ultimately becomes springzy is emerging is that is that the case did you have something specific where you felt like you know what there needs to be a service that does this a separate company that does this because we struggle doing this internally or t- tell me about that genesis when did the ideas start to turn for springzy and can you remember the moment yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it actually, um, going back to when I was 16, mm-hmm. I was working at a drive-thru and uh, the the guy who worked day shift was actually, um, he was a little bit of an overachiever. And we got these 32-ounce collector's mugs in the drive-thru and we were supposed to be upselling them for a dollar. But there was no like instruction whatsoever. They just came in like a garbage bag in the back and we had to figure out what to do with them. So he put up a little tally sheet on the wall. He wrote his name at the top and just kept the tally for every one that he sold. Well, I came in for my shift and I saw that he'd sold, I don't know, 12 that night. And I thought, well, I can sell more than that. So I put my name next to him. <laughs> and, and then I just started keeping tallies as well. And we went back and forth for a couple of days and sold out of the mugs. Well, fast forward, I'm in charge of marketing for this restaurant chain that at the time maybe has 30 or 40 restaurants and they're spread out all over the country. And I need to come up with something to do for holiday gift cards. Right. So we need to sell holiday gift cards. I'm like, well, we can't buy TV. We can't buy radio because we have restaurants that are just, you know, a single D, a single restaurant and a DMA. Yep. So I kind of went back to that experience with the collector's mugs. And I thought, well, let's do a contest. And our reporting capability was somewhat limited. I could see um, store level stats. 
so I could see how many gift cards and their dollar value were sold per store. So before you go so on though, what kind of reporting are you talking about? You needed to get reporting that told you on a what per employee basis, how many of these, how many incremental sales were happening of, of certain uh, menu items? Is that the case? Sure. Well, that's what I would have loved, yeah. but that wasn't necessarily available in kind of our, our rudimentary reporting. And at Got the it. time, uh, they were using micros and we had um, we had some reporting, but I wasn't super familiar with it. It was complicated. We had to ask for special reports to be made from time to time. It took forever. So I was basically the IT department got me a spreadsheet that had every restaurant listed and how many gift cards they'd sold for a time period. So I didn't have individual employee level stats. So that meant I had to structure the contest at the store level, meaning the winning restaurant, everybody got a prize, which kind of makes the prize budget big, but that's all right. So we did that. And my idea was everybody's going to get an iPod in the winning store. His iPods were kind of a hot thing. Anyway, I put together this awesome kit. It went out to all the restaurants about the holiday gift card contest. Winning store gets an iPod. And then, um, and then I started tracking it. And I, I sent out the results weekly because it was kind of a process to go into the spreadsheet and put everything together and sort it and send it out. So let me ask about that then. Just the, the, when you had the idea for the contest, and as you start thinking through the ways to measure the effectiveness of the contest, was just that alone starting to frustrate you and feel make you feel like, my gosh, it shouldn't be this hard. Just to, oh, just yeah, to figure absolutely. out how much we sold of this because of the contest versus just this, you know, just this the uh, the item being available or whatever. Like it seems like you're already finding at every turn from reporting uh, to working through the POS to the how uh, manual everything has to be. It seems like at every turn there was a pain point for creating this. Oh, absolutely. There was. And then the biggest, uh, kind of the biggest throw your hands in the air frustration moment was about two weeks into the contest, I had called a restaurant about uh, a different issue entirely. And a server had answered the phone. And just on a whim, I said, oh, how's the holiday gift card contest going? And her answer to me was, what holiday gift card contest? So that was like an eye opener. So I realized that the tracking was extremely tedious and manual communicating it to the crew members, it got lost in translation between franchisees and managers, etc. And then also when I was only able to really send updates weekly that then again, may or may not even make it to the crew members, I realized there's, because I've always been a bit of a technology buff, so I thought there's got to be some automated way way to do this. It's not too terribly complicated what we're talking about. Right. And, and not only are you not able to get reporting the way you want, it's becoming clear to me that you allowing the employees and the location managers to get insight on how they're doing from a motivational standpoint, incentive standpoint, to get excited about it, to step up their efforts or whatever, that must have been completely missing as well. Or you had to manually put that together also. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the key, if you want, if you want people to change their behavior, you need to give them feedback on how they're doing. And it needs to be as real time as possible. So me sending out a spreadsheet every week to the franchisees, or the store managers, I mean, it was effective. We increased gift card sales 30% year over year. So it was a su- success by, by every measure, uh, but it was, it was tedious and it could have been more effective. So the idea is going there, uh, but you've got enough going on with your day job that it's not like you could suddenly pour yourself into uh, solving this problem. Um, how did it evolve from there? How did Springsy's evolution continue from there since that's where it, maybe the first seeds were planted? Yeah, so it started. It started as an idea, just like that, and, and it was in the back of my mind with all of the other ideas. And throughout this whole time, I'd been trying various things. Uh, the iPhone had come out recently in 2007, so in 2008, the iPhone 3G launched, and the App Store came about, which to me was like this treasure trove of like opportunity. So immediately, I went out and bought a Mac because you needed a Mac to write uh, iOS apps, and I started teaching myself to make apps because I thought, oh, you know, this is a great opportunity. I've got all these cool ideas for apps. Um, That turned out to not be the best use of my time, but it was kind of a fun hobby. I'm jumping in because this was a fun part of the conversation with Charlie. He discovered that he was not a software developer. That doesn't stop him from ultimately co-founding a software-based company or technology company, but he realized the actual coding was not something he could do. Sometimes you just got to size up your skills and realize what you're good at and where your talents could best be applied elsewhere. 
You know, working from home is mostly great, but there are some days when I realize I haven't left my house or even my chair like all day. Have you been there? Getting outside to exercise or making a trip to the gym are just harder now that my office is just a flight of stairs away. If you're stuck in the same rut as me, then you should try Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W. With the Hydro rower and 20 minutes a day, getting a full body workout is so much easier. Hydro can work up to 86% of your muscles in just 20 minutes for an insane effective home workout. That's because Hydro pairs the effectiveness of rowing with the power of technology to connect you with over 5,000 video trainings, classes, and workouts. And get ready to get out from behind your home desk because after a few months of daily rowing with Hydro, your partner's gonna wanna take you out for a night on the town to show you off. This spring, join the growing rowing community at Hydro. Head over to hydro.com and use code FREELANCE to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com and promo code FREELANCE to save $400. Hydro.com, promo code FREELANCE, or just click the link in our show description. Have you ever noticed that many of the problems people call in with on this show can be solved by hiring someone? Sometimes you need a full-fledged team, other times maybe just a simple assistant or an expert in something you're not great at. Whatever your reason for hiring, we recommend you take a look at LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. As you may know already, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. And LinkedIn Jobs makes the process of finding the perfect teammate easy and intuitive. Hiring is always easy when you have access to so many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours when using LinkedIn Jobs. I've used it myself, and it was so simple. In fact, I've made multiple hires using LinkedIn Jobs, and did I mention, by the way, it's free to business owners like me and you. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash freelance. That's linkedin.com slash freelance to post your job for free or click the link in our show description. Terms and conditions apply. But anyway, so this this idea stayed with me. I started talking to some people about it, people I knew within the industry, uh, some people that had started their own tech companies within the restaurant industry. And that's another thing I'd, I'd stress is don't be afraid to talk about ideas with people and get their feedback. And when people people come to me from time to time because they've they've seen the type of stuff that I do, so they think, oh, he'd be a good person to like, a good sounding board. But they're always very um, guarded Skittish. about their idea. They're like, I don't want to tell you what it is but I'm going to tell you just a general description. And like, listen, I am not going to steal your idea. Right. Like you don't understand the amount of effort and work. Like the idea is the easy part. Right. It is It is so easy to come up with ideas. It is so much harder to market validate them and build a business around them and actually turn it into something sustainable that you can grow. So don't be too guarded. I mean, you don't want to broadcast it out there to everybody, sure. but don't be afraid to talk to your peers and and the people within your network about it get their feedback because the odds are they're going to give you some great insight or help fix some of the problems or plug some of the holes in it. Interesting. I think people do get either one of two things. Either they don't feel so committed to their idea that they don't share it because they don't want people to laugh at it um, is one. Uh, the fact that this idea has been consuming their mind, they don't want to be judged for that. I think that's a part of it. But also that notion that the idea, somebody else could run with the idea. It's funny how many people worry about that. Maybe if you're in a certain community of developers or something like that, and somebody has an actual interest in your idea and thinks it can scale and thinks they can market it very well and thinks it has great potential. If all of those planets are lined up, well, maybe there is some risk then, but it seems like the risks are far outweighed by the rewards of having somebody that you can bounce ideas off of who can just give you some feedback. So what did you do? Okay, so you've got this idea and you're, and you're thinking this way that you need to start getting some ID people to uh, bounce this idea off of. Who were your trusted advisors and mentors that you thought, couldn't there be a service that does this? Or were you in that mode early on? Did it take a while before you, you know, your, your thinking for Springsy uh, got to that point? Uh, so it, it took a little bit of time to, to germinate. The idea was there and then I just kept kind of building on it. Uh, so I'm a big gamer. So a lot of the ideas from like Halo and, and some of the games that I play deal with leveling and ranking. And I realized if game developers have found a way to make sitting in front of a screen and clicking a button entertaining, like extremely entertaining, borderline addictive, then why can't you apply that same philosophy to working in a restaurant? 
to make just doing the job a little bit more fun and build some employee loyalty and a little bit of investment in in their career. So I started layering on those those gaming elements to it, talking to, uh, back to your question about some of the trusted advisors. Uh, a gentleman I know founded a company and email marketing companies for the restaurant industry, uh, Scott Shaw. And he's been just absolutely great as far as like a mentor to talk to him. So I bounced the idea off of him. I talked to some of the agencies that I was working with, just high level, like, what about this? Don't you think this would be cool? Got their input and feedback as well. And then eventually it became, I got to the point where I said, I've got to start doing something and building this. And that's when I reached out to what became my co-founder, um, who was an acquaintance through the job and he was a developer. So we started talking about it and he was on board immediately and, and we started rolling with that's it. That's pretty cool. So um, you've, you've got a combination of development oriented people that you can bounce ideas off of, creative people through agencies, as well as restaurant related people, even though uh, you mentioned Scott Shaw, even though Scott Shaw was at that time, I think the CEO of Fishbowl, maybe the founder, I think even of Fishbowl, yeah, both. email marketing company for the restaurant industry, large restaurant chains and so forth uh, that they work with. Uh, he was also a restaurateur. Like he, he, he has owned and owns today uh, restaurants. So he knows the industry really well. He's not just a software guy, just not just a uh, uh, software as a service person or something like that. So you, you've got trusted advisors almost that cover different types of angles that you can bounce the ideas off of, it sounds like. And I wonder if that was uh, was invaluable for you. What do you think about that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can't put enough, um, you can't put enough emphasis on how important it is to have a, a group, you know, a good network. And that's where, uh, going back to my point about getting a, a traditional job was was great. Like it wasn't a bad thing. It didn't delay anything. If anything, it gave me the foundation that I needed to actually build a company. During this time, as an aside, Charlie not only got good feedback from mentors in a variety of different disciplines that went into what Springsy would be, he also started freelancing on the side to make a little extra money to build a cushion. Tremendously smart. There are plenty of entrepreneurs who go all in on their product or service and those who dabble in something and then expand that. But Charlie was wise in that he was building a product, freelancing, living his day job, building that bank. I often wonder how much stress would be off of entrepreneurs' plates if they only built a bigger, longer runway before needing to rely on their thing. So I have to ask, given the timeframes that we were talking about here, did the idea or the advent of Foursquare, of Scavenger, those apps that were popular gamified apps that were targeting the restaurant industry, um, did those enter into your thinking at all as far as mo interesting models of where gamification was influencing behavior whatsoever? Not really. A, a little bit. Like I obviously was aware of them, but kind of... Going back to this idea where the the businesses that I've created in the past have been to fulfill needs that I've had, like I never actually used Foursquare. I think I installed it once, and then I this is kind of cheesy, not my thing. But I think I saw myself obviously as a customer of Springsy, so I think that the gimmicky kind of gamification that was more consumer facing and didn't really solve it doesn't none of those really solved a need that I can. Pinpoint. Right. So I saw them more as gimmicks, not really as inspiration. Got it. And and this is, I think we're talking 2013 when these ideas must have been coming in and out of your mind, I assume, right? Uh, I've got, so I, I was going through some old papers and I found some notes dating back to 2011, actually. It was like some sketches and ideas and and scripts for like a animated video, explainer video. What's fascinating to me about this, uh, not being an expert in the restaurant industry, but knowing it pretty well, especially from a technology standpoint and a marketing standpoint, the thing that stands out to me is that, uh, and today I think with modern EOS solutions, there's a lot you can accomplish. Five years ago, you couldn't accomplish a lot. You're thinking through a solution that as you, as you started off this, this interview, that is a service, but has a technology element to it that's necessary, not just for the behavior modification piece, but 
um, be able to track everything from a point standpoint or you know ranking standpoint, all of that sort of thing, leaderboards or however however you want to phrase it. But you also have that POS, the operational integration that's got to happen to get the data on the transactions themselves. How did you think through how you needed to focus on each of these three pieces and what part you know uh, they would play in the development of an actual offering to the restaurant industry? Uh, so the the POS integration is obviously critical, and that's been a that's been a constant challenge because of uh, PCI compliance concerns and just uh, restaurants or customers and their data not wanting to necessarily open it up or share it. So we've had to kind of bootstrap it in a sense. It's when a customer comes along that that wants to work with us, we need to figure out you know what PO, what point of sale system they're using, what options are there to get the data. And then we've, over time, we've built several methods for getting it to where even if they just want to export it in like a CSV file and email it to us, like in an automated report, we can just take that, crunch the numbers and pull it into our system. We also have like cloud-based API integrations directly with the point of sale and a few other ways uh, we can do it. But it's just been kind of a, we haven't, we didn't go out to solve every single use case. We're just solving them as they come our way. Uh, but they've got to be solved and you're not, you're, you start to wade into territory that you might understand philosophically, but from a technological standpoint, have got to be somewhat difficult to grapple with as far as how the two systems can communicate with one another. Obviously, getting a CSV file from somebody is not difficult, but if you're talking about actual API integrations, I assume you had to lean on right. your partner a little bit for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't have, so I, that's probably, well, you know, you make a lot of decisions when you start a business, but if you decide that if you decide to have a partner, picking the right partner is probably the most critical decision you can make. And and I just I just lucked out. I think I found you know the perfect guy. He's he's a genius. He can figure all of that out. And he's strong where I'm weak, and vice versa. And and we just uh, we just have the same goal, so that makes it easy to do it you start to develop what this solution will look like. And it's some total. You, you got all the pieces of the puzzle together. And was there a day one where Springzy officially launched or were you starting to beta test this? Um, how did you decide to go ahead and, and get actual market validation for Springzy? Uh, beta testing. I, we, you know, I work in the restaurant industry. I knew quite a few people. That, that ran restaurants and I'd, some of them had been part of my sounding board. So when we had something that was somewhat presentable and worked to some degree, I was able to go to them um, and say, hey, can we try this in your restaurant? This is what it's going to do. I'll run it for you. We won't charge you anything. We just want to get some results. We want to get some feedback. We want to see how it works. And obviously we learned a lot. I mean, it was very, very early stages. We got up and running as quickly as we possibly could in terms of having something that we could use. And then after, just after a few months of doing this, I was able to take the results that we got back to them and say, hey, we were able to increase check average. We were able to increase sales. We want to start charging you uh, monthly to use this. And some of them said no, and some of them said yes. And just like that, we were in business, you know, actually generating revenue. That's incredible. So you went into this with those locations, letting them know that, hey, listen, we have a, we have a hypothesis here. And we know the industry well enough that, and there was probably a trusted relationship with, you know, with, with, I assume some of these people, Buffalo Wings and Rings locations or something like that. But so you have a trusted relationship to some extent where they're willing to play along a little bit and see what the results might be. There has to be a certain amount of physical setup work that you have to do because this is a system that's not as sophisticated or mature as it is today. So you probably had a lot of manual stuff that you had to go through in the early phases. How did you decide your product would be successful? Not just in general, not from just a marketing standpoint, like, oh, it worked. The re- you know, results, the increase in sales was, were tremendous. How did you decide it, it had been successful based on the amount of work that you had to put in to make a location successful? Because those are two different things, right? Sure, yeah. So how did you gauge Absolutely. that? Uh, we, didn't, we didn't do anything fancy. We said, hey, we were able to, we're able to charge this person. This is how much it's costing us and just like raw resources in terms of like server time and that type of thing. And then this is how much we're charging them. And right now we're putting a lot of our own effort into it, but we believe that a lot of this can be automated down the road. We're just going to go with it and see what happens. And and that's another thing that my partner has been great at is when we do have a, a situation where I'm spending a lot of time manually doing something or looking things up, 
when we get support tickets in, I'm keeping track of what the topics are. And when I see something coming up time and time and time again, he's able to implement a solution that takes care of it automatically. So then that just clears the plate in terms of support. Right. And so at, in those beta tests, your product, we'll call it a product, even though it's, it's like some mm-hmm. total of services and so, and so forth as well. How did it differ then in those beta tests as far as what the complete package was versus what it is today? Uh, it is, well, it's gotten a lot more refined. So a couple of years ago, we actually hired a user interface design firm to completely overhaul our user interface and design it uh, to look great in a responsive layout. So it looks great on a computer. It looks great on a phone, looks great on a tablet. So just from a presentation standpoint, it's light years past what it was before. But we've also continually been adding features to it. And they've all basically been features driven by our customers. So people using it day in and day out, when we get ideas or feature requests from them, they get rolled into the product and it's kind of a a combination of all that. What's fascinating to me that you guys had it so well fleshed out at an early stage. and, And I think that's a testament to you knowing the industry extremely well, knowing not only how the, uh, this, this, the tool needed to work behind the scenes, but even on the front end for a manager, for you guys, for the individual uh, team members at a restaurant location, all the ways that they need to be able to interact with it. You thought through that even at the, in the early stage. If you were to start up a company from scratch next year and you start your planning process right now for what that next product would be, what are the lessons that you, when you look back on the, you know, say the first year of Springzy, what are the things that you learned about getting that initial validation of the product um, and maybe thinking through what is sufficient to build for a product to get that validation versus what will the product need long-term to be a sustainable product that scales really well? What are the lessons that you learned then that you think you would need to, that you would apply for your next, you know, venture, your next endeavor, if there were one, if there were one that you would launch? Sure. I would say that the, probably the biggest lesson is, is validate as quickly as possible. It's easy to get hung up in all the details and the minutiae of a product and, and over-design it going in, but you really need to strip it down to its core and say, what core features need to exist in order for this to work? Like going back to, going back to Springzy, I don't know that we really needed the point-of-sale integration to validate it. We could have, we could have gotten those f- CSV files emailed to us and skipped that entire point-of-sale integration step out of the gate, at least to do the, at least to do the validation. So it's over planning is, um, is something I would caution people against. And, and I would try to avoid, I would say, you know, let's, let's outline the, the core product and let's get it in front of potential customers and see who's willing to pay for it. And then go from there because you can always add features down the road, but the sooner you get out there in the market, the sooner you're going to know what those features really need to be rather than what you think they need to be. All right. So you get initial validation at some of these locations. Um, and how many did you feel like you needed to say, this is working just like I pictured? <laughs> how many, when, you, when did you feel like, because one location could be a number of reasons why it su- succeeded, right? Um, when did you feel like, yes, we have validated this product officially? Um, I don't remember a specific instance because it's been, it's taken forever. I mean, it took, it took a year or two to get 10 locations. To be honest, and then and then the next year we were up to sixty, so it, it it took a long time to break through and get started, and the whole time I knew, I just knew that we were onto something and that it worked and there was value here, but convincing and I initially naively thought everybody else would just see it and they'd come running, but I realized no, we have to go out and we have to sell it, and for some reason we have to convince people this is the greatest idea ever, <laughs> even though. I thought it was going to be obvious just by looking right. at it. So there wasn't, I, I can't put my finger on a specific aha moment. Um, it's still a struggle every day. I mean, it's just kind of the ups and downs of, of a small business. And that's business. probably unique to, not unique to you because every entrepreneur faces that. Uh, they, have the, they have the idea that this product needs to exist, this service needs to exist, and then a market that they have built this for rejects it <laughs> or even par- oh, or yeah, even yeah, occasionally yeah. rejects it. You know, not everybody buys obviously for a variety of reasons. It's hard to not sometimes think, well, wait, I built this for you though. And this, and I know it works. Why would you not, why would you not see that? Exactly. But that's just the way, that's just the way life works. Right. 
Yeah, early on, I had a call with a with a VP of marketing for a huge national chain, and this was like via networking. Like this is somebody I had no right to even be on a phone call with, given the size of our company at the time. And after my presentation, she told me, "This just this isn't a marketing product. This is an operations product." And I thought, "Wow," it's like I don't agree with that at all, but. You know, what I realized is some of these restaurant chains are just kind of so siloed and structured in terms of operations and marketing and training being completely separate. There's no, um, there's no kind of carryover between the different departments. And that kind of had to change the way we approach things. And we realized it's going to be chain by chain, whether we go to marketing or training or operations. Uh, It was kind of an eye opener. So it's funny, you you were a marketing leader, the marketing leader at a, a restaurant chain. So you sat on that side of the desk. Then you came up with an idea for a product that you thought would be a great benefit to that marketing person. You were going to be your own best customer. Absolutely. And, yeah. and yet you just said you had a VP of marketing who thought, well, I don't understand the connect- connection here. You need to talk to my colleague down the hall in the corner office who right. runs operations and new stores and all of that sort of thing. And, and you're thinking, wait, I've been in your shoes. That's not, how this, that's not really how this works. The metrics that are going to move are your metrics more than the operations right. person person's metrics. So externalizing this and taking this outside of Springsy and just thinking of it as an entrepreneur, being on the other side of the desk, selling to the very people, offering a product and service to the very people that you just were, what aha moments along those lines have you had? Uh, that, was, that was one of the biggest ones. I think... Um realizing that at the time, at least the large restaurant organizations weren't considering the crew members in the restaurant as part of the marketing team was an aha moment. Because in my previous role, we'd looked at it as these are key members of our marketing and brand ambassador team. I mean, they're the ones interfacing with the customers day in and day out. So if we want to deliver a brand experience, which is a, you know the core of marketing, marketing we didn't think about in the terms of like, flyers and direct mailers and that type of thing. We thought about it as a brand experience that we were trying to deliver. So naturally, we looked at the crew members as an extension of that to realize these large, huge organizations and restaurant chains were still looking at their crew members as just kind of tools and the operation toolbox and don't have anything to do with marketing or the brand was was an aha for me, absolutely. And I think we had to wait years before these larger chains are starting to come around and realize, oh, wait, we've got an army of marketing people working for us. We need to treat them you know, yeah. differently. And as a person also uh, staying with that theme of being on the other side of the desk and now as an entrepreneur, how has it changed? Again, if you were to mentor somebody who's starting their own company and they see themselves as an ideal customer, just like you were or, uh, or are, what's the wisdom that you would provide somebody who's curious about how they need to change their own thinking, consumer of that product or service, buyer of that product or service to provider of that product or service. How does that, how does your mindset need to change when you are no longer the perfect ideal customer, but now the provider to that perfect ideal customer? It's tough. It's tough because you've got to look at how, how you approached it when you were on the buying side of the table. And I'll be honest, there were meetings, uh, WebExes that I participated in when I had another window open and I was looking at Facebook or, you know, watching YouTube or something like that. And you've got to realize that it's like, that's what you're up against. Like, it can be very boring to be on the receiving end of, a, of the 32 slide deck that you spent all night putting together and are really excited about. That excitement isn't necessarily going to transfer over. The distractions aren't always competitive distractions. <laughs> they are just exactly. attention span distractions. And maybe that needs to shape how you position things or how you approach your zeal in, in talking to people about what it, what it is your product or service does, it seems like. Absolutely. It, the key is you've got to, I've always got to remind myself, I, I was wearing multiple hats in that role. I was getting pulled in all different directions something like this was another project. It was another responsibility and it wasn't just something you could say yes to and be done with it. You were then going to have to own it and be responsible for it within your organization. So understanding that you're asking a lot from that person in terms of a commitment from them, where they've got limited time, limited resources. It's not just about money. In fact, most of the time, 
we get no, a no from somebody, it has nothing to do with money or budget. It's just the time commitment that they perceive is involved to successfully launch and manage another thing within their organization. That's interesting. And so it's making you think about, about not just the cost of the product or service or the lift, in your case, the ROI that they would get from it. It's thinking about the soft costs that your ideal customer is going to have to incur to incorporate your service, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's about making their lives easier. Yeah, I've thought about it. I've thought about it a lot. And we, so we incorporate um, examples of how it works, how we, how we roll out and even break it down. Like how many hours are involved for you? How many hours are involved for your IT department to try to really flesh out what's involved so they understand the commitment and hopefully they realize it's smaller than they originally anticipated. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you're, you're hoping that even when they factor in hard plus soft costs that you come out the winner, obviously, in any sort of ROI calculation or something like that. Okay. Do you think the restaurant industry is particularly unique in the way you sell to it as far as the collegial nature of, of the industry where people really do look to one another for proven either solution services, service providers, software, um, that sort of thing versus other industries? Uh, so I can't speak to other industries because I've never worked in another industry, but I can say that there's a, there's a totally a sense of like camaraderie amongst uh, restaurant professionals. They go to these events, they ha- like the NRA show every year is like a big party. Everybody, everybody I've encountered has just been like really, really cool and friendly. There's been people that have gone out of their way to help us and make introductions on our behalf and ask nothing in return. So it's a really cool, it's a great industry as far as I'm concerned. Right. The reason I ask that is I think it's important that entrepreneurs don't just have an idea for a a solution that an industry needs. They think that it needs this certain solution. And so they aggressively sell that product or service to an industry without really knowing how the industry works or how people interact within the industry. There's like norms within certain industries and how people interact. And um, I think one of our earlier conversations about Springzy highlighted to me that you didn't just want to build a software solution. You didn't just build a service solution. There's a hybrid here at work. There's, there's two pieces here. You're providing a service that is technologically founded, but you're providing it in a high-touch way, just like that industry is accustomed to doing with its own customers. And it's almost, I wonder if that resonates with them in ways that maybe other software providers don't fully get. And I wonder if that's common in other industries as well, where people try to sell something to an industry, not thinking about the norms of that industry. Did you, I guess to turn it, so that's my comment, (laughs) but to turn it into a question, is it important to you that your service that's patterned after their manner of serving their own customers, you know, it mirrors their way of serving their customers? Yeah, yeah, and I that's something I didn't appreciate completely at first and I didn't put it front and center until I, I I really started thinking about it and I realized back when I was on the other side of the table talking and I talked to a lot of technology companies because I was into tech and I like there's all this cool stuff we could do and I realized talking to these companies that they they didn't get restaurants or the restaurant industry, you know, they might provide support but it was Monday through Friday from 9 to 5. It's like, well, in a restaurant when stuff hits the fan, so to speak, it happens on Friday night or it happens during a lunch rush or it happens on Saturday or Sunday during the game. Understanding that we're taking a completely different approach to not only selling it and talking about it, but servicing it and then bringing that front and center and talking about my background and experience within the restaurant industry was a game changer. And it changed people's demeanor immediately when I do talk to them. Uh, once, once they find out, oh, they're talking to somebody that actually has some restaurant experience and it's not just some nerdy guy that made an app. They, they listen a little bit more attentively and they take, they take us a little bit more seriously. So yeah, absolutely. And it makes me feel like the conversation changes from I've got something for you to uh, I'm one of you. And yeah. hey, I, I was facing this. I, I, I tested the hypothesis. It worked. We turned it into the service. It seems like you there's a relational element there that you've understood about your industry. I actually think that other entrepreneurs need to do more of that uh, if they want to relate to their target market. They got to be in the target market. They got to be a a close ally to the industry, if not having come from the industry, um, before they start thinking that they know all of the pains and ills of that industry that they're going to solve and uh, at the the complete ignorance of every other issue that might be on their mind, like some of the soft things that we just talked about, you know, launching something, all the moving parts internally that have to happen for them to adopt 
your product or service or start working with you. Final, final area I want to cover as far as the business growth goes. SpringZ is growing. You're in well over 100 locations. Time is going by and you've got more than enough market validation. You don't win every deal that you want because nobody ever does. And yet, there's an opportunity to offer something unique or add a new wrinkle to how the industry or how your product and service work for independent restauranters. And that comes from the large beverage companies. Can you talk a little bit about how those conversations got started and why, and how you arrived at the decision to entertain them versus saying, nah, I don't think that's a good fit. How did you arrive at, at saying that that might be a good strategic direction for Springsy? Sure. So we, we always saw it as an opportunity down the road. So our, our initial thought was we're going we're gonna to sell into thousands and thousands of restaurants and then we're going to become a gateway to crew members for giant beverage companies. They can come to us and basically fund programs through our system and we can give them access to all these crew members across all these restaurants that we're already So this was already in. part of the plan. And it, you saw this as a, as a potential down the road, even early on. Okay. Yeah. And I think I want to say this is, this is an idea that came or a concept that came from Scott Shaw way back early when I was talking to him about the idea. He's like, well, you could, you know, once you get, once you get to a critical mass, all of a sudden you've got another product that you can sell and that product is access and, and moving metrics. So that was kind of our idea. And then what it morphed into is we started having these conversations when we had the opportunities with, with beverage companies and what it morphed into was we didn't have a giant install base, but they do. And they have motivation to help us get installed in their customers' restaurants because then we can help them sell their products. And being a small company, it, it worked out to be very advantageous for us because now our sales force is massive. And we've got, we've got sales reps for these beverage companies going out and speaking to their customers. So they already have a trusted relationship established and they can pitch us and then make an introduction. So that's worked out. That's worked out well for us. And then the introductions there, have just again back to networking. Somebody at a giant beverage company goes to somebody else and says, "Hey, do you know anybody in the crew engagement space?" And they say, "Hey, yeah, I do." As a matter of fact, uh, there's this guy Charlie you need to talk to at Springsy, and that's how the conversation that's starts. Incredible. So it's people looking out for you and people that you just naturally stumble across along the way. I won't call it luck because it it's a part of being involved in an industry and not just being on the fringes of it, but being actually involved and making connections with people and seeing the doors of opportunity when they open as doors of opportunity, not just random doors that you just walk past. Figuratively right. Speaking. Yeah. You've got to, I think there's a great quote. It's the harder I work, the luckier I get. And that, that obviously there's a lot of truth to that. And it's about, it's about seizing opportunities when they do open up, but also not ever uh, turning your back on something or someone just because there's not an immediate benefit to working with them. You know, scheduling the phone call, having lunch, grabbing coffee with somebody, even if you don't see an immediate kind of road to them benefiting you, you never know what's going to happen several years down the line. There's been people that I met at a conference that had no no intersection whatsoever with what I was trying to do, but I talked to them, made friends with them, connected with them on LinkedIn, and then two or three years down the road, out of the blue, they make an introduction that turns out to be a great deal for us. Brilliant so. insight. There, if you think too short-term in your payoff of relationships, you're doing things wrong. All right, Charlie, I'm going to let you go, but I'm not going to do so without you participating in a final segment that we've just rolled out on the podcast that's a whole new piece that you've actually just teed up really nicely for me. So we roll out a new segment called three and one, and I'm going to close with giving by asking you three questions that ask you to give me one specific answer for each one of those three. So bite-sized answers uh, for each of the three questions that I give you. All right. The one thing on question number one is one principle or value that you have come to believe that most people don't. Principle or value. Oh, you didn't say they were going to be this hard. Of course, like philosophical questions. Well, they could be businessy. Uh, and you say most people don't. I think um, the idea of owning owning your mistakes. And I'm not saying most people don't, but I think that when you mess up, just being straightforward about it is the best thing you can do. That's an awesome answer, by the way. Well done. Here you are stressing out about it, and then you just give a home run of an answer. Good job. <laughs> All right, one behavior or habit that you try to stick to no matter what. Perseverance just never you just can't stop or give up 
because if you do, then it's not going to happen. Love it. And then finally, and you 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 made reference to a couple people in this one, but one person that you most admire that you take your cues from in life or would most aspire to be similar to? Oh, man. My dad. That's a good one. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a blast. That was the story of Charlie Frankus, co-founder of Springsy. Stay tuned for next week as we bring you the story of Scott Keys, founder of Scott's Cheap Flights. He started the company almost out of obligation to serve a rapidly growing email list freely. Today, it's doing seven figures and employs 22 people out of Portland, Oregon. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, give us your rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. But more importantly, tell a friend or three recommend us, mention us, pass us along, and reach out to me on Twitter at Brandon Hull. Thank you to my co-producer, Preston Lee, founder of Milo, admin of the Milo Mastermind community on Facebook, as well as our incredible assistant, Bilal Abrar, for helping put this episode together. And of course, to our friends at the Podglomerate Network. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you next week on Freelance to Founder. The Podglomerate. Sonic Universe.